Welcome to Parenting in the Trenches. I'm Karen Peters, a registered clinical counselor, and I'm a mom. We're getting real about all things family from a mental health perspective. So let's get to it. Welcome back to Parenting in the Trenches. I've got with me today um, a fellow therapist by the name of Chris Wrench, who has a long, a lifelong passion for helping kids overcome hardship from trauma, abuse, anxiety, or even just the daily stress that comes with living in unprecedented times. Uh, he takes a real humanistic, person-centered approach in his work and helps children and adults become the best version of themselves. And his goal is to give new hope to kids and their parents as he sees them along a path of healthy, full relationships. So um, in terms of education and experience, Chris has earned a Master's of Arts in Counseling Psychology degree, a BA uh, with honors, in psychology with a minor in sociology, and a human services certificate from Trinity Western University. He has specialized training in two very specific trauma therapies. One is lifespan integration and observation and experiential integration. It's a mouthful. And I'm going to maybe, before we get into questions, get you to explain a little bit about those modes of therapy when we get to that. So he's driven by a desire to see healing at every stage of life. And Chris helps people overcome past trauma and pain and move forward in healthy, full relationships. So those two pieces of therapy, I'd love you to kind of just in a nutshell, describe what they are. Um, I welcome you here to this conversation. And then I will like Launch us into the questions that we've developed for today about anxiety and trauma. Sounds good. Okay. So, so what's the first one? The first one, lifespan integration therapy. Yeah. Uh, it's been around, I think, for maybe 20 years now. Um, so, okay. you know, in a big picture, still fairly new. Um, yeah. It's based on the idea that our memories are more or less connected with each other and that the more connected they are, the more integration we have in our brains, among our memories. And generally speaking, brain health is often um, considered best when there's an integration going on. So brain integration, memory integration. So with lifespan integration therapy, um, the clients bring in a list of their own memories, right from the first one that they can remember, you know, two or three per year. doesn't have to be much, just like, you know, the green bicycle the red carpet, um, Mrs. Smith for grade two. Um, and um, in a very <clears throat> um, quick way to explain it, not to go yeah. into depth, I did my master's thesis on it, so I could talk <laughs> for a while. Yeah, yeah, um, we want the snapshot. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I'd be reading back those cues to you or the child or whoever, and then just... Yeah simply by listening to these cues from somebody else and also over and over and over again, um, sometimes five times a session over, you know, five, 10 sessions long. Um, the idea is that those memories have a stronger connection with each other. So where there might've been just, you know, like a bare, bare minimum connection between two memories, there's suddenly like a highway, like a really strong connection. Mm. Um, especially with traumatic memories, we keep them separate, right? We often even yeah. don't remember those until we are older. 
Um, and so by integrating them with all the other memories, we're taking out the intensity of the big ones, of the traumatic ones, and kind of like dissipating the energy um, with combining that into uh, the other memories. Often clients will say, oh, I feel so much more settled in who I am. Um, uh -huh. There's a, bit, a stronger sense of self. Um, so yeah, that's in a nutshell. There's like a few different protocols that we can use specifically for if there's like one event that happened, we can okay. go back there in, in time, so to say. Um, yeah. If there was attachment trauma right from early on, or if there was a relationship, you know, things like that. There's different protocols. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I, when you um, describe yeah. that, I picture a blender. Like it, it takes out the concentration <laughs> of one ingredient when you blend it mm -hmm. all together. It's like it waters it down a little bit, but it gives yeah. some some connection it's hard to tell one thing from apart from the other then it's yeah. all yeah um, okay yeah cool. the, the other metaphor that's often used are tree rings you know like every memory is a ring and then the tree is the whole thing right we are the whole thing but we are an accumulation of all the different rings and so with tree sorry with tree house that um with uh, lifespan integration therapy uh, that tree that feeling of one tree is getting stronger and stronger you hesitated to kind of connect that to your company there, your brand, but this is, this is important. This is now coming clear to me why you have, because this is a fantastic kind of warm environment for kids to want to come into to do some hard work because it's a metaphor of a tree house. Now you describe your tree rings and I understand this mm -hmm. better. Very, yeah. very good. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So if you haven't seen Chris's, Chris Wrench's uh, website, please go to it because at trauma or it, is it Treehouse Trauma Center, right? That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Treehouse Trauma Center, you'll see their logo is the a slice of a tree. So you get to see all the rings and this makes so much sense to me. Beautiful. Okay. <laughs> and the second one is, I always just say OEI, so I don't have to yeah. say this big mouthful every time, but what it stands for is observed and experiential integration. That's right. I always okay. say OEI too, because even saying the full words doesn't always mean anything. Like, no. Oh, yeah. it's observed experiential integration. Again, you still have to explain that. So OEI, yeah. um, it's, okay. um, it's a, a, a modality, a therapy modality that's using parts of the brain to access memories uh, directly. Um, and every time I say that, I have to add that we know we're not poking the brain, we're not opening the brain up. <laughs> yeah, no surgery <laughs> yeah. involved. Exactly. Okay. The idea is that um, the amygdala, one of the parts of the brain that's uh, responsible for those big emotions, we have um, a direct connection through our eyes, a nerve bundle that goes there, there are several nerve bundles. And we can use that nerve bundle to access the amygdala and kind of bypassing all the, the words, the talking that might mask it. Or we have to be able to find the right words in the upstairs mm -hmm. brain and to describe something that's going on in the downstairs brain. And with OEI, we can use that connection directly. There's no poking of the eyes. There's no <laughs> anything like that. It's just eye movement similar to EMDR, if uh, listeners yeah. know what that is sometimes to do um so it's kind of a cousin to emdr and it uses eye movement different positions of the eye to access information in the amygdala and then release it yeah. okay and the idea therapeutically to access and raise it 
what do you do with it? Mm-hmm. Is the pro- what's it's, the process for healing in that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, we use a three-phase approach in trauma therapy. We create safety first, then we do the mm-hmm. processing, which I use OEI for, yeah. um, or lifespan. And then phase three is kind of, okay, now we've processed this. What does that mean for my life? have to okay. do the things that are the things that need to be changed etc and so a session might look like that we come in we do a little grounding exercise maybe 20 30 minutes of oei processing it's often very intense so we i as a therapist need to make sure that you as a client are mm. always within your window of tolerance and um, yeah. and then at the end it's kind of like okay so we're putting our thinking cap back on. Let's talk about what just happened. Uh, some of mm. those experiences. Um, okay. Yeah, I, I find it's very. Um, uh, it, it's one of the. One of the quickest ways to process traumas that I've seen. Um, also, one of the most intense ones. So I yeah. don't suggest it for everybody, especially okay. you know early stages of processing tra- trauma therapy, because. Yeah. Oh, sorry, there was a big thunder outside. Did you hear that too? <laughs> I did hear something. Yes. Oh, we have it. some wild weather in our background. <laughs> um, um, so yeah, early on in trauma therapy, uh, I wouldn't necessarily use it first session because there might be um, memories come up that have been um, covered up or the intensity might emerge and then I, as a therapist, always need to make sure that my clients are um, able to process what's coming at them. So, yeah. yeah. Kind of a precision so tool that you Yeah, more of like the, uh, you can assess the capacity for the person to come back to being grounded again. And if we can't move to that, then that's not probably the best time to be that's doing right. that. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And just on a, on a side yeah. note for uh, using it with children, is, looks yeah. often very different than using it with adults. Okay. Um, so often with adults, I take many sessions and often, you know, full sessions of that. While with kids, very often because of the neurological or even emotional mm-hmm. defenses aren't as strong yet. Sometimes um, what we call switches by covering one eye and then the other eye, that's one of the mm-hmm. strategies that we use. Sometimes five, ten minutes, it's all that it takes to take like little Johnny from a eight down to a four or again, it doesn't work for everybody. Um, yeah, the same way, but it's, I found it quite, quite helpful. I'm glad you pointed that out. I think it's hard for parents to picture what happens and especially if they're not going to be present in the therapy session, it's helpful for them to kind of know from outside the room what's happening. So it's a good description to say, you know, my kid's not, I'm not kind of sending them in for an hour of intensity that I can kind of picture what you're doing to work with that, but also to really temper what kids have the capacity to endure and like sit with and actually make use of, right. To mm-hmm. make it productive. Yeah. yeah. Right. Today's topic was going to be kind of a little bit of a hybrid. Sometimes we get really specific about things and we say, okay, we're just talking about anxiety or we're just yeah. talking about depression or we're just, this was a little bit different because we wanted to acknowledge that it doesn't always happen so cleanly or so neatly. And we don't always put things in a little package like that when we're treating um, mental health struggles or 
experiences that we've had that have been really complex and hard. And one of the common overlaps that I'm hearing a lot of parents bring up, but also feel confused about, is the overlap of anxiety mm -hmm. um, in terms of not just feeling anxious in appropriate circumstances, but when it feels disordered, when it gets in our way and it's not functioning for our, our kids, it's that version overlapping with, has there been trauma or should I be worried if there's trauma? Like it was a sudden change or, mm -hmm. and there's confusion about like, what are we treating? What should I be looking for to support them? So before we get to the resource part of it, I'm wondering if you can help us in the conversation about how those two show up in overlap. And, mm -hmm. and part of the way I wanted to ask the first question was kind of chicken or egg, because I think it, maybe feels a little bit hard to say which came first. Like, was, was my kid always anxious and I just didn't realize it? And then something bad happened and now we call it trauma? Or did this create an anxious kind of presence in my child because they've yeah. experienced something hard? Yeah. Or even a third one, is trauma maybe becoming almost a buzzword of like, oh, everything is trauma, traumatic. Yes. So, yeah. um, you know. So the way that I understand trauma is that it's an event that happens to us that's at least temporarily overwhelming our capacity to handle what's in front of us. Yeah. Now, that's that's a very vague description, but I, f I find it encapsulates it quite a bit. Yeah. So again, we're, we're finding ourselves in a situation that's at least temporarily overwhelming us and we can't cope with it. Um, And then our body goes into those trauma responses that, mm -hmm. um, you know, fight, flight is a very commonly used terminology, but then there's also the, the framed and the, the framed, <laughs> the freeze and the faint respond, fight, yeah. flight, freeze, faint. I can go into those a little bit later, but um, so trauma, the way that I understand it, it's something that happens to a kid that's at least temporarily overwhelming and they go into trauma responses. Um, it can, and then the, another language I like to use is the little T trauma and the big T trauma, mm -hmm. not to make light of any of the trauma, mm -hmm. um, big T trauma being, you know, the typical childhood, sexual abuse, physical abuse, um, neglect. Those are like the, you know, the big like more obvious longstanding. Okay. Yeah. Or even, um, a car accident can be a big T trauma, even though it was just a one-time thing, it can be okay. like so intensely overwhelming. Mm. Um, little, quote unquote, little T traumas then are, you know, the death of a pet, which is overwhelming and intense, but might not be as overwhelming and intense as the loss of a parent, uh, which okay. I would often consider uh, a big T trauma. Mm. So chicken and egg. Um, kids that have more anxious tendencies would most likely get to that overwhelmed state quicker than other kids, right? So yes, it, you know, stands to reason that kids with anxiety might experience trauma quicker or in a different way than, um, than kids that don't have those anxious tendencies. Yeah. Um, but yeah, definitely on the flip side, if a, if a kid experienced trauma, um, they will most often first be diagnosed with anxiety or like labeled as anxiety 
because the, the symptoms of trauma in children is often that yeah. anxiety. Looks the same. With, it looks very similar. That's right. Yeah. Mm. Um, so it's what you said. It's um, the big difference. Like if the kid was fine and then suddenly there's a, a big change of like, okay, now there's anxiety, now there's withdrawal. You know, then I would definitely look into okay, what what happened, and there might have been kind of a, a little t, big t trauma situation there. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so chicken and egg. Um, I don't know. Let's make an omelet. You're saying <laughs> um, both. Both, yeah. <laughs> it is both, which is, I guess, that just validates why people are asking the question, "What came first? Because it isn't so simple. And it, and it may be actually this interact, like it could be either way and it could be both. It could be that we're already sensitized to traumatic circumstances. We are more easily tipped into a traumatic experience if we yeah. are already yeah. primed to be anxious and it can exacerbate that symptom because our nervous system is then more, it's, it's learned to become more sensitized in order mm -hmm. to try and stay safe, right? So it's like reading the alarm signals on with extra sensitivity now because it's experienced something really challenging and overwhelming that taught it, I better look out. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah that, um, hypersensitivity, that being vigilant about everything. Yeah. Yeah. If parents look at their... So you mentioned something important because when you take your child to a doctor... Your doctor is only going to, to be able to use two sets of data. One, what they're seeing in the room happening in front of them. And two, what you're reporting likely as a parent, right? So it requires kind of some naming of what we are seeing, but that's only what we're seeing. So we can only really name the behaviors or the changes in our kids that we're noticing that cause some concern. And we bring those to a physician. And so oftentimes, like any diagnosis, it's really just a list of descriptive criteria that say, now we can say it's this. But there's so many overlapping symptoms for many different labels, right? And so when we when we name those things and we kind of say, well, looks like anxiety. Do we have concerns about parents saying, well, I better find treatment for anxiety if it's actually trauma? Are we, are we taking parents down a wrong track or is this a good gate way to come in and it, will it still be helpful? A very good question. Um, so if, so what you're saying is if the parents bring in the kid to uh, bring in the child to the family doctor, family doctor says, yes, anxiety, go see a therapist about anxiety. Um, it's, I, I don't see the tr necessarily that being uh, harmful, right? Mm -hmm. It's, um, they'd still get uh, help for the anxiety, those kind of behaviors. Um, I would probably say that if there is a trauma, not just quote unquote, not just anxiety, mm -hmm. then those kind of treatments might not be as effective or as long lasting than okay. if it was anxiety. Um, trauma, um, luckily, is becoming more and more part of the training of all, all of us therapists. So even if 
um, you know, as a parent, go to a therapist that aren't advertising themselves as a trauma therapist, the likelihood that they would be able to pick up on, mm. okay, there's more than just anxiety is increasing, right? They, because okay. that training is out there and, you know, podcasts like yours, and we've got yeah. many trainings for therapists. So um, I don't, I can't think of a scenario where um, that could be of harm, like bringing your child in for a quote with just anxiety therapy, um, because there's usually an, an awareness going on. Yeah. So what would a trauma-informed lens add to? So for those therapists who have pretty solid training or a really good pickup kind of like feel for like, oh, I can see, I'm going to, I know to ask those questions, not just assume it's just a present anxiety, but just if we were to want to reprocess trauma, as opposed mm-hmm. to just working with calming the current nervous system state over and over, right? Mm-hmm. Or give CBT skills, for instance. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, what does that, what are they looking, what should they be looking for? What does it look like when that lens is applied? What kinds of things mm-hmm. are therapists thinking about or watching for or asking? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, just from the top of my head is, um, I'd say any kind of expressive play um, will yeah. be extremely helpful for both anxiety and trauma. And by expressive play, I, I simply mean anything that's not um, anything that there isn't a right way, a wrong way to play with. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure you're, I haven't had a chance to see your playroom yet, but all yeah. uh, both of our playrooms here, there aren't are very few games that have rules, right? We have a board game, a few that have rules, but even those are, you know, flexible, but yeah. the Lego that we have, there's no instructions. The watercolors don't come with instructions. The dolls, everything they so kids can use them in the way that they want to. They can use those toys to express themselves and what's going on in them. Yeah. Um, so there's a wisdom inside the kids that they will play whatever is on their mind, on their on their feelings, I should say, like whatever is going on inside of them. And through that expressive play, they there's two things happening. They show the therapist what's going on. They they will create a scene. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll build something with Lego that kind of shows them what's going on inside, or in the sand tray, or again, drawings, paintings. So that is going on. So a, a therapist can see what's going on, and there's a lot of interpretation needed. And, mm-hmm. You know, we don't always get it right. Um, yeah. But we don't have to because that second part is almost like auto-corrective. Like they mm-hmm. they play it, they see it in front of them. It's like, oh, okay, um, all right. Now it's out of me. One, it's yeah. like us talking about something, and yeah. then also like I see it in front of me, and now I can change it. Uh, I can destroy it. I can move on. Um, and none of that will be like conscious processes of like, okay, now I'm turning it 90 degrees. And right. this, right? Right. It's kids, they're intuitive, right? It's something we yeah. have to learn to do again. Um, but the, that intuition will help the kids problem solve just by playing. Mm-hmm. So an expressive play therapist or play therapist, whatever the label there, um, actually... <laughs> sounds strange saying that but that they don't have to do a whole lot 
in terms of like being directive, saying, okay, now move this thing, move this thing. There isn't much mm-hmm. of that going on. Yeah. It's more creating that space for the kid to feel safe, to express yeah. themselves the way they want to, and then to be able to hold those emotions. And with trauma, most likely those emotions will be stronger than with um, you know, um, mild anxiety symptoms. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, and I mean, that's that's the part that's a crucial part, being able to hold it and have that child-centered expressive um, play going on. <laughs> well, you know, I liked, I like what you describe as the, the, if the wider we make it for kids to express themselves, the more revealing, authentically revealing it is about what they've experienced and what they need mm. to do. Cause I think we do a, a, as adults, we do a lot of assum- assuming. So I'll see my mm. kids struggle with something. And I think, well, we need to fix that. Right. Or, yeah. Yeah. and we might not actually know what is underneath that. And, and kids can't find those words to tell us. Mm, and right. so giving that safe space, when you say we're not doing a lot, we're providing a lot, but we're not mm. instructing and we're not directing because that actually prevents the child from being able to reveal what's actually happening underneath. And it, and it, you're right, it's not conscious. So I love that, that space that gives the tools or the environment that feels safe enough to access that for kids Mm -hmm. and for us to be able to reflect back and notice just helps mirror there there is what you experienced aha that is what's happening for you and we don't actually have to get much right right because it's yeah and as soon as we put our interpretation in there we're guaranteed to get it wrong so we just reserve that but it's purposeful So I like that option. And I think, you know, for parents to maybe have the freedom to not have it all figured out too, that when they bring their child, they don't have to say, here are the things we need to change. And this is how we're going to go about it. That that actually doesn't have to be the effective plan. It's let's see what happens for the child. And we're going to give the right safe environment to provide that child with the ability to let it out and then interact with it as though they have some control or agency. That's right. Yeah. And um, back to your original question too, about what, how would a trauma informed therapist do it Mm -hmm. differently? So they would very much um, do what, what you and I just described, Um, looking at it through the trauma lens so if, if there's a known trauma, then um, we are able to interpret like these kind of plays in a different way. Um, sometimes with trauma, um, kids get stuck in a certain play, in a certain theme, so that yep. autocorrective um, situation isn't happening because they're just, they're stuck. They can't Redo, get out Re-experiencing of it. it? Okay. Exactly. Yep. And so then this is where then I, as a, as a trauma-informed therapist, would step in a bit more mm-hmm. and um, in a form of a character. Um, let's say, you know, the kid is playing in the sand tray with animals. The way that I would interact then is to go into that story with another figure, um, usually a kind of a helper, I don't know, police, mm-hmm. nurse, doctor, that kind of teacher whatever feels safe and kind of help the character uh, maybe offer some solutions or just whatever 
it's a very intuitive process usually that's going on yeah. between the child and the therapist. Um, and then to help the kid that way, to help the kid get unstuck. Um, mm -hmm. And this is where then the lifespan integration therapy also kicks in for me, even though I might not have all the, the words from the timeline um, right there. But when they, if they get stuck and I know which moment they are stuck in, I can then also take them all the way to the present, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say a kiddo is 10 years old, whatever happened, happened at seven, and they play through over and over again what happened at seven. I can help them get through this and then say, yeah, and then you went to first grade and second grade, and then you went to Disneyland vacation, and now you're here. Now you're 10. You're not seven anymore. You're 10. Um, so that's often a very... Uh, 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 Often that's something that will look differently in trauma play therapy mm -hmm. than quote unquote just expressive. Facilitating the movement and the integration. Okay. That that's yeah. a goal, that that's part of the yeah. work. Yeah. I, when you were speaking there, I was thinking of um, Dr. Gabor Matei's uh, kind of succinct definition of trauma. And the idea that he puts out there is that we aren't traumatized primarily by the incident that occurred, but by being alone in the pain. Mm. So it's the aloneness and it doesn't mean there weren't people around, but I have like a lot of conversations with, had some conversations with youth recently who have had siblings um, watch them go through some incredibly traumatizing experiences. So as a sibling watching that was traumatizing for them and the parents were so in the crisis with that older child that the younger kid felt very alone. Even they were in the room, they were interacting, but their experience was that I was kind of abandoned temporarily because the they had to be because the parents had to attend to the crisis of the other child. But it's so for us, and I say it that way because I don't want parents feeling guilty for not having shown up or, you know, cause we have this, we have this belief that we should always be able to protect our kids from these things or whatever. We cannot. So I don't want to, I don't want to send that message. I want to articulate that this, this isn't because you could have done it any differently, but the reality of the lived experience for that traumatizing moment for that child was that nobody could be there for me in the way that I needed. And because I was alone in that, it got stuck. Like it kind of got in, imprinted in my nervous system and I feel really insecure about it now. Like I'm not stable anymore. I don't feel that sense of assumed safety that I can handle what's coming at me. Yeah. Um, right. And so I, I wanted to also ask you about how that looks then in youth, because how are you working with youth who have experienced trauma when you're trying to access that in kind of that broad non-directive, what does that look like if it's not in a sand tray, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so with youth, it's very often similar to what you experience in adult therapy, um, mm -hmm. just because, you know, that the parts of the brain that can create insight, you know, have developed more. And so yeah. I'd yeah. be working, you know, with, around that, around insight and trying to help them uh, get unstuck there. Um, how would mm -hmm. I do it differently? Arts, generally speaking, I would still use with any adult. Like I had yeah. a 65 year old client uh, yeah. a few days ago and we drew something together, right? Because yeah. it, it's one of those things that Access bypasses the thinking. Exactly. 
um, movement. Movement is another thing, like physical body movement. Um, okay. So with preteens more, not so much with teens. Um, just in my own practice, not that there's a yeah. big difference, but we have a backyard here, Treehouse Trauma Center, and we just go out and, um, I don't know, play badminton or kick a soccer ball. And sometimes we use, you know, when we get stuck in session, we can go out and move around, um, which then, you know, creates distraction, but also our bodies hold some of those memories, of, you know, bodies, our bodies keep score of the trauma. Yeah. Um, and so moving in times where you weren't able to move creates yeah. that um, additional kind of uh, breakthrough. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that's maybe... Yeah, um, those are great. I'm always so encouraged too when I hear... I, I, I always like to blur the lines a little bit about like what happens in a professional therapy session and what parents can mm-hmm. do to support their kids at home. Because we see them an hour a week, maybe, and parents have them (laughs) under their influence and like in relationship all the rest of the time. And so I know so many times parents will come saying, I need the support because I have to know how to respond to those moments when I see them get stuck, when they isolate in their rooms, when they refuse to eat, when they won't see the friend that I know that they're really connected to, when they're terrified to go to school. When they're, what do I do in that? And when I hear, you know, some of those therapeutic tools get demystified when we say why movement works. Mm -hmm. Because it seems a little weird, right? So we could say, well, just go throw a ball out. I'm like, well, that's therapy. But what's therapeutic about it is that it's timely. It's in the moment where someone's experiencing helplessness or I'm trapped And we're giving them an avenue to not feel trapped in their body. So movement counters that, right? It's like same as people who get hyper vigilant vision or like narrow vision when they get scared. If we use the eyes to say, let's train your eyes to start doing figure eights around the room. It's just a physiological marker that says to the nervous system, you're actually fine. You're not Mm -hmm. in the danger. When we don't explain that to parents, it seems weird to say, tell your child to look around the room. (laughs) But right. But I, I like that really tangible example of like, this is what you do when you have a kid come in who's struggling and we just tip into something that feels like, oh, there's some stuckness. What do we do Mm -hmm. to give you a different bodily experience of that in the moment? That is what therapy is. It is therapeutic yeah. to do that, right? Exactly. And in addition to that, too, uh, it's the connection, right? Like okay. I, like you said, okay, we might just be playing badminton outside. And, you know, there's a little part of me that I'm like, okay, like if mom comes back now and sees us playing <laughs> badminton, it's like, and I paid how much for you guys playing badminton? Exactly. You know? Yeah, yeah. But, uh, um, there's, it's, the timeliness, um, the movement, and the connection, like just yeah. the application, uh, the being seen by somebody, being felt by somebody, knowing you know for the for the preteen for the kid that I'm playing with to know that I see them, I feel them, I 
I understand yeah, you're wet. them as much as exactly being you're with wet. them, have that connection there. It's huge. Like um, that's yeah. like the number one thing that changes people in therapy and outside of therapy is that connection to that mm-hmm. to somebody who can see you, who can, who, who understands you. Um, yeah. So in speaking of demystifying things, you can do at home. That like one-on-one connection. You know, I'd like to prescribe the, you know, one hour a week, phones off, you and the kiddo, nothing else. Yeah. There's no rules. Don't underestimate no... the power of that. Mm-hmm. It's it's huge. Um, uh, <laughs> um, with that, before, you know, um, I like to shoot myself as in like, um, should I should be doing more of that. I shouldn't yeah, yeah. be doing, you know. Should... Yeah. So I, I have a eight-year-old and a five-year-old at home that, as far as I know, haven't experienced trauma other than maybe my parenting, but it's that, (laughs) it's that, um, you know, that connection, we don't have to be perfect all the time. Like it's my understanding that as long as we are most of the time, AKA, you know, 60% of the time, as long as we have a good connection with the kids, they'll be fine. Yeah. Um, that is always a huge, like D shamer, um, like yep. okay, I, I messed up, but nobody needs to be perfect. Yeah, um, de- like apologizing is huge. That creating connection that way, um, and I thought it was something else. Oh, the other thing um, that is that you mentioned, you know, like we only see them once a week, an hour a week, maybe even less, um, and so there is a lot of healing power that can happen through the family. Um, and it's actually, I don't have the statistics right at hand, but um, let's say Johnny and Jane are going through the same traumatic event. Um, Johnny has a great connection to his family. Jane, unfortunately not. There is like emotional disconnect or, or whatever you want to call it, but that attachment isn't as strong as in Johnny's family. Um, family connection won't protect us from going through the trauma. Like you said, we can't always be there. Even if we are, we might not be able to be there in the way that they needed us. But in the aftermath, having that family connection will help the kids bounce back quicker than kids who don't the have repair. that repair. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So the, the after effect, the, the, the aftermath will be... Uh, will look very different than yeah. uh, kiddos that might not have that attachment figure in their life. Yeah. So the, also this encouragement to, you know, to the, to the parents out there that if there was trauma, maybe trauma that hasn't, was under the radar or it wasn't seen by the parents, it doesn't matter. Like if you can be there for your kid, once you know, then yeah. they'll bounce back so much quicker. Yeah. Yeah. It's really encouraging. And I think it also speaks to parents getting their own support. Mm-hmm, um, definitely. Yeah. yeah. How much more can happen when parents are feeling like they've got someone who without any shame or judgment will hold space mm-hmm. for them to process what they're worried about, what has happened, what they feel like they've maybe contributed to, like all the beliefs and the thoughts that we bring show up in our reactions to our kids trauma when they bring it to us right so doing our own work around like how am I responding to that and 
what do I see or not see about how I'm responding to that goes so far in being really present and validating and helpful and therapeutic for your kids while you're trying to support them. Oh yeah. Big time. Big time. Yeah. There's, uh, and um, it was talked about in previous episodes, like those minute triggers, right? They um, like raised eyebrows or flushed faces by yeah. that kids can pick up on that we might not even know. Yeah. Um, by us going as parents, going into therapy ourselves, we can like those kind of minute little triggers will come less because, well, yeah. you're emptying your stress bucket and then you have more room in your. In, in your yeah. Well, and, and even if we don't feel like we've resolved them, even knowing about it already is the step in the right direction. Because in the moment, I can be imperfect and I can have kind of had my reaction, but I can then name it. So I can say to my kid, okay, I just noticed, you know, I'm wearing my grumpy, worried face and I'm just going to take a breath and then I'm so sorry. Let's talk about that, which is powerful. Can you imagine if anybody did that to you, how forgiving we tend to be with each other? It's not too late. And so I think sometimes we feel like if I can't handle it the way I idealize in my head, then I'm better off actually staying away from it. Don't bring it up. Don't go near them. Let them sort it out, have their tantrum, do their whatever thing. And then we'll just carry on because we got through that one, Mm -hmm. which is not the therapeutic way. But I think I get why we have that belief that we're actually doing our kids a better service by trying to like just stay out of it because I don't want to have my negative reaction. But if we do some of the support work of just aware, being aware of like what's happening for me when that when that comes up for my kids, helps me be able to notice it in the moment. And I can say, oh, this is really overwhelming. Let's go move first. Let's go for a walk first. This isn't the time we talk about it. This isn't, but I'm here for you. But without kind of doing our own work around noticing that, we won't know what to name. And then our kids do all the guessing for us, right? Which is the hard part of those relationship ruptures is it makes the kids feel like they're responsible for making us okay. And we don't want that. No. And you had a great episode a few months ago with Lisa Dion, um, Synergetic Play Therapy. Yeah. Um, she has, um, like, I'm a bit of a um, fanboy for her. She's she's an amazing yeah, expanding for therapists, but also for, for parents. Exactly yeah. that. Like, we need to um, synchronize our nervous systems, connect on that yeah. level. And if we are hyper, they'll get hyper and all that. She's an amazing teacher. Yeah. And, um, explains that really well that um yeah just what you just described the the regulating co-regulating yeah that was one of the earlier episodes we did I was so excited to have her on because I it was (laughs) her that uh changed my whole frame of how I work with my own kids (laughs) how do I parent my kids and also how I yeah how I work with other children and support parents and she's phenomenal yeah I might just add that link back in. So if parents want to check that out, go to the show notes and I'll link in that previous episode so you can find it. Um, Before we wrap up, I would like just to know, like you've done this work for so long for parents who are hungry to, to understand trauma in childhood better. Do you have kind of go-to resources or things that you tend to hand out to to families to better understand either reading or webinars or anything that 
you frequently kind of rest in on or lean in on and say, this is an added support for you if you're curious about yeah. knowing more? Um, unfortunately, I haven't come across one yet, a resource, a, a book yet, um, but yeah. my list isn't exhaustive, obviously. Yeah. Um, I always like to go book to, sorry, I always like to go back to any of Dan Siegel's books because even yeah. though they are not trauma specific, again, that attachment piece, and he's describing this so well, um, that attachment piece is huge, especially when it comes to trauma. Yeah. So um, depending on the situation, I would start by suggesting parenting from the inside out. It's an older okay. book by him, Dan Siegel, but it's the idea that we parent the way that we've been parented unless we change mm -hmm. something and become aware of it. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other one is the whole brain child, uh, the no drama discipline, uh, the brainstorm, yes brain, all of them are great books. Um, yeah. I like that you mentioned that one actually, because it has a workbook as well. The whole brain child has a workbook and I've, I've mm -hmm. noticed that okay. a lot of parents who have purchased even just the workbook, it has good synopsis for each kind of like flow of asking questions that really help from a parent lens. It's not just for professionals, but yeah, that's yeah, a good, definitely book. Yeah. it's, um, yeah, just like you mentioned, Lisa Dion has impacted your parenting. Yes. Dan Siegel has impacted my parenting. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. Um, if okay. now, in terms of trauma specific resources, when it comes to complex trauma, and complex trauma is if it's not just one event, but an accumulation, mm -hmm. especially early on, um, there's a website, uh, it's mouthful, the International Study for the sorry, the International Society for the Study of Trauma and Dissociation, the ISSTD. Okay. Um, they have resources for parents mm -hmm. on the website. And um, there's a, a cheat sheet, a fact sheet. Um, I think they've got some books on there too. Um, they, and they focus on, on quite a bit on dissociation, which we haven't touched on, but dissociation is yeah. a big quote-unquote side effect of trauma um so if it if the children have experienced more complex that's a resource that i would suggest excellent um, yeah locally there's also the i want to say the kennedy house i think they have um mm -hmm. quite a bit of resources and um the complex trauma institute is that what it's called yeah Chuck Gattis. yeah um, i usually refer yeah. to him as well excellent yeah. thank you it was great to speak with you today. Yeah. I, I was, uh, we were at 46 minutes already. I kind of had in the back of my mind this little uh, inspiration to ask you kind of about like, what about kids who have experienced trauma and then don't know how to reenter school? So how, what do we do to help? How, what can parents do to help kind of coach their kids and being able to kind of be back in a school environment but maybe we just need to do a part two on another yeah. day but this was <laughs> lovely conversation we covered actually a lot i appreciate your time thank you yeah thank you karen for the, for inviting me here if you are a family who has a child who is expressing some symptoms of anxiety or if there's just really high stress in the home and an inability to kind of feel like you can keep up with coping with it as a family, I'd encourage you to check out my CBT for the family course, which is online. So it's 
really self-paced. You can do it at your own pace. Um, once you've downloaded it, it is yours to keep so you can revisit it at any time. And it comes with a printable activity workbook that guides you through therapeutic conversations and activities and exercises and games um, that are kid appropriate between about the ages of five and 12 and help you as a family learn similar language around how our bodies work, how our nervous systems are operating to try and keep us safe and what we can do to make that really work in our best interest instead of against us. So um, to really foster that as a family, the learning kind of sinks in better if you're learning together. And so I created this to be something that you can do in the safety of your own home um, at your own pace and um, and all benefit at the same time. So wishing you great mental health. Thank you again for joining us in today's conversation about anxiety. And uh, I'll see you next time. Thanks for spending time with me today. Remember to check out the show notes for related resources. You can follow me on Facebook and Instagram. Or you can also subscribe to my online learning page at my.thrive-life forward slash LRL series, where you'll get updates, extra tools for your toolkit. And if there's a topic that you want me to cover in this podcast, please shoot me a message. I would love to hear from you. Shoulder to shoulder with you, knee deep in this mud. I will see you back here next time.